welcome to the bullpen session. This is Patrick Lovis. Glad you're listening. Glad you're here. Glad everybody's okay. Hoping you are. Hoping everybody's in. Got an appointment. Got a vaccination. If not two by now. Uh, starting to feel hopeful that uh, normalcy is coming. I feel like I've said that the last couple episodes, but uh, really feeling it this time. Had to, you know, went out to San Francisco, did the play in the theater, and then went to Wells to see a play in the theater, and then I went to a Yankee game, and I have to say that was the most normal thing I've done. It was so good to be back in the stadium, feel like I didn't realize how much I had missed that, or how much I was grieving that, and uh, so maybe not optimistic shouldn't be the right word. Maybe I'm just anxious for for normalcy, anxious for being able to get together with everybody and, you know, do find reasons to gather. I was going to say do theater, but anything. As a group of friends and all of us getting together, I am looking forward to it. Uh, that said, I'm glad to be able to do the pod. I'm glad you're listening, and I'm really glad this week I got to talk to Kelly O'Coin. Great guy, great actor. You know him from The Americans, Father Tim, and uh, Dollar Bill and The Billions. And I realized I've seen him in a ton of plays. I think the first time I saw him was a play at the Cherry Pit called Jailbait somewhere around 2009. And I've been meaning to have him on the pod for a long time and really just saw him actually plugging something he's doing during the pandemic of a podcast with Dominique Wilkins about the dominant ones, people who dominate their field. And uh, I just love the fact that he was working with the human highlight. And, uh, Dominique and thought that was so cool and reached out and he was a great guy and uh, he is a great guy. We had a great conversation. You will hear it now. Uh, and it's just nice to hear the whole, his whole journey and, and I'll let you listen to it, but it was just, it's, it's a good thing of like a little bit about just putting yourself out there is what I heard and being in the right place and, and, and being comfortable with who you are. And I think that's, that's what comes through. You'll see how comfortable it is. It was a, it's just a great conversation. And, uh, you know, with that, I'll let you listen to it and play ball. Two, there are two, two aspects to it, two parts to it. Um, number one, uh, well, this is sort of number two, but I'm going to give it to you first. Um, during the pandemic, I, uh, during the first part of the lockdown, I, like a lot of us probably were just, I was flummoxed. Uh, uh, my wife did have it, a very mild case. And so we isolated from each other for three weeks. And um, it was just sort of, I, I felt lost, like a lot of us did. And one of the things that I started doing, uh, I'm on the board of an organization um, called Culture City, which is an autism rights and awareness um, organization. And they wanted me to take over their IG live account, IG account and do a live uh, with uh, uh, because of some initiative we were launching. And I really liked it. <clears throat> and I like to talk and I love bullshitting with people. And um, that one of the things I miss most about theaters being shut down is that I can't go to a bar late at night and just talk over beers about whatever stream of consciousness. Um, and so this takeover wasn't exactly that, but it led me to the, our board chairman said, you should just do it. Go do it. You like doing this. Do it with your friends. Do it with do it with uh, people from billions. People will like that and you'll like it. And I did. I did Sarah Stiles. I did Steve Kunkin, Daniel Isaac, Paul Giamatti, um, uh, Condola Rashad, David Costable, a whole bunch. And then people beyond billions. 
And I had a great time doing it. It was very, very free form. And we got a little note, especially the Paul Giamatti one and I, we just talked for about almost two hours, completely free form, just weird stuff. Like sound, we sounded like stoners, like, wait, what if time like stopped? <laughs> yeah. Like what about spontaneous human combustion? Whoa. You know, uh, but so now to back up. So that's what I've been doing now to back up about Two or three years ago, I got a DM from Twitter from uh, Dominique Wilkins, and I said, sure you are. Um, but he had that little blue check next to his name, so I figured uh, if this was a scam, it was a very elaborate one. And he said he was a big fan of Billions, and he was doing this podcast called The Dominant Ones about people who are successful in their careers, and he wanted, and, and, uh, and uh, would you come down? Can I fly to Atlanta and come to my house, and we'll, we'll film an episode with you? And I said, uh, I think before I finished reading it, I was yelling to my wife that I was going to Atlanta. Because uh, <laughs> I grew up, I'm a huge basketball fan. And I grew up in the era when, um, uh, you know, Dominique, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, uh, these guys were my heroes. And even though I was a Portland Trailblazer fan, this, that, this was an era where um, sort of just before, it was between the Bill Walton eras when we won the championship and the and the Clyde Drexler years when we, and Terry Porter years when we, we burst back into the scene. And so I went down, we had a great time, great conversation. I remember he said something along the lines of, to, to one of the producers, he said, that was so, that was so different. Like he kept, he was asking me questions. It was like an actual conversation. And he happened to be the chairman of the board of this organization, this autism organization. And the people who picked me up at the airport were the founders of the organization. And they tried, they started selling me on it because they knew I was a big civil rights guy, social justice guy. So even though I didn't have a direct connection with, um, um, or didn't think I did with uh, people with autism, uh, it, I, I felt strongly about the cause. Um, about six months later, I joined the board uh, Dominique decided to have a second season of the dominant ones, but we got a sponsor and got a little money coming in. And he said he wanted, he asked me if I'd come on as sort of the, the color commentator, you know, with, so we co-hosts and he, he's the play-by-play -play guy in a way, uh, you know, he's, he, it's his show and he's, um, he, he leads us to the specific questions because it's all about his curiosity with what makes people dominant what um, in their lives, uh, what, uh, you know, that was his brand, dominance. And my job is sort of to pick up on little strands and go off on um, on tangents. And we, it's, uh, we, we shot a whole season on Zoom. Our yeah. first guest was Dwayne Wade, you know, which blew my mind. Sorry, I keep, I'm talking way too much. What are you going to ask? No, you're not. It's, uh, it's great. I actually, yeah, I've watched a couple of them and I'm excited for more. You know, I'm a big, I watched uh, the Evangelical, evangelist of apple and uh and somebody else today and um and i'm looking forward to marcus lamonis there alex bloomberg uh, yeah so, yeah so, um alex bloomberg who's the founder of gimlet media that was um, which it. was I bought by spotify record. recently yeah and he's great he and i went to college together so it was kind of fun to touch base um Parenthetically, for those in the theater world, um, Mimi O'Donnell uh, is the, uh, I can't remember the exact title, but she's in charge of the creative. The fiction, yeah, like the fictional narrative um, sort of weighing and picking and curating. Uh, so that was kind of cool. And I was able to 
uh, recommend her when he was looking to uh, enhance that end of things. And so that was, I wasn't the only one, but he was asking for like a brainstorming session of who in the theater world, since he wasn't in the theater, theater world, picking my brain about it. And she was one of the people I came up with. And so I was, I'm really thrilled that, uh, that uh, she's, she got the job and has been killing it. That company's killing it. They are killing it and uh, good recommendation. That's great. Yeah, seems like a good fit. Yeah, I was, uh, and the, the neat thing was, Dominique was just interesting to me because, you know, one of my questions is always like, how are you spending the pandemic? You know, yeah. how are you staying creative? And that seems to be one good way. Uh, are you back yet? Are you back filming anything, working? I, uh, I so Billion started back up again a week ago today. I have not shot yet. That'll be later this month for me. They're doing a lot of Chuck Rhodes stuff right now, and they'll be doing more of the Damian Lewis and my side of things later. Um, I've done some, I've done two, one fully produced little short play that was really fun on Halloween. It was a spooky play written by Tarek Davis, uh, who's on the Amber Ruffin show and Freestyle Love Supreme. Uh, he's He wrote it and starred in it and, so this this Zoom meeting that goes horribly wrong as AI starts to take over all of our in, uh, consciousness. But it was four days of rehearsing and um, basically memorizing. And I was surprised at how quickly it started to feel like an actual rehearsal room, um, which was great. And what you said is right. It feels like a rehearsal room. However, getting prepared to do a real production, a physical production in a theater is not the same. Uh, preparing. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, uh, it, it was it was a very different experience than uh, because it was short. It felt like doing um, it felt like being a one act, which is sort of what it was uh, for us. And uh, what felt what I guess felt so familiar and shockingly familiar, um, uh, and shockingly um, satisfactorily, uh, you know, it was enough. Uh, was that feeling of camaraderie and the joking and the uh, and the and the trying of different ways of things and note sessions and stuff like that and it was just really cool. Yeah, when you said that, I knew about, I missed it, but I, I didn't know how much. Yeah, when you said that, actually, I've been saying the thing that I miss is when you said you missed the casual going out afterwards, talking in the bar, freestyle. Is you know when you're in a cast of like you got ten people online and it's Zoom, you know, and the break happens you can't bullshit with two or three people in the corner, you know, because it's yeah. public yeah. for everyone. And I'm like, Oh, that's, right. I missed that. I missed just the uh, going up and asking somebody, you know, asking you what was it like to talk to Dwayne Wade, you know, <laughs> like that's right. not anything right. to do in front of 12 people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I miss talking behind people's back, you know, you could go in a corner and like, snick. no, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, yeah, so to the podcasts and the, the IG lives and stuff, I my refrain has always been, you know, it's not exactly creative, um, exactly, but it definitely approximates the void that was um, uh, left by the pandemic and the lockdown. So it's it's felt connected and at least creative adjacent, <laughs> which has kept my brain afloat because I have not had. Um, I've not shot another TV show. I've not uh, shot a film during this time. Uh, so it's been a year. Um, I'll be shooting on the 19th as it stands right now. 
March 19th. Um, I was on set the first a week before last to do a sort of COVID um, tech COVID rehearsal where we did everything, including full works, makeup and hair, and, uh, costume and wardrobe, taping things out, all crew coming in, rehearsing a scene, doing the same camera angles and dollies and everything. We just didn't shoot it. So we were talking and the path that you have to take now from the dressing room to set, uh, what lunch is like. We had a whole day where we just did, did all that stuff. Um, but in terms of shooting, I will be back on set. My last day was March 12th of last year. I was there for the final scene that we shot last season, last year. Um, and it'll be a, a year and a week to the day. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I've forgotten how to act, so I hope it's an easy scene. <laughs> yeah, they should they should ease you back in, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting when you said the thing about social justice when you they knew you were interested in that when you met with Dominique and his people. I was curious. I'm looking at all the television. You know, I, I'm going to back up to the beginning at some point, but I was interested in the television. I thought that seems to be a through line in the material you're doing. And mm. um, just the Americans and, and Billions, which has a political social commentary on it. Sure. And, you know, um, all of a sudden my brain is blacking out. <laughs> Isn't um, that the way? But um, House of Cards, you know, right. and it's like, and I'm wondering if do you, do you navigate what you're, getting opportunities for and to be part of? Are you, are you seeking it out? Are they seeking you out? Is that coincidence? I mean, I, I wish I could say that I was in a position in my career where I could um, curate my choices a little more than, uh, than I can. I mean, I can, I can certainly, and I always have turned things down that offend me, um, but I'm not, I'm, I haven't been uh, in a position where I can really responsibly say uh, that I'm, that I'm that, you know, I don't know. It, to a certain extent, I still do. I am still at the mercy of people saying, here, do this. Here, you can do this. Um, we can certainly approach things. I have had straight offers, um, but I don't know. I don't know yet that I'm in the position where I can really say, oh, there, I understand um, who. Um Gus Van Sand has uh, has optioned this book and I know that book and I know this part. And so I'm going to start inundating him with calls or I'm going to like really push it. You know, I just, I don't think I'm quite there at that point. Um, but I do think I've been lucky. My, I'd say the first big TV break was House of Cards, even though it was only four or five episodes, it was still really fun. And it was an interest. I got to work with Michael Kelly, who I think is brilliant and, was one of the, the the breakout stars of that show. People liked him, so they liked seeing his story. And I was his brother who helped him back on the right path until he murdered that person. <laughs> Spoiler. Um, uh, but um, so I, I think I, I was lucky that I got, I don't know, and I hate to say stuff like this, but a prestige cable show um, that was about something and that had brilliant writing and, and had nuanced, weird characters. And, um, and then that helped open the door for how, for the Americans and the two of them together helped, um, definitely helped me get, 
uh, billions. And I even remember in my audition, my callback audition, um, one of the one of the either Brian or David saying, "So House of Cards, so you're in House of Cards. So what? Uh, it hadn't been released yet." Uh, and he's like, "What? What do you? What do you? What do you play?" And I was like, "Well, I play uh, Stamper's brother." And they were like, "Oh, because the previous season we had seen Stamper, we thought killed with a rock to the head." So, um, uh, I mean, maybe it worked to my favor. They thought, "Okay, Stamper's dead. His brother's going to come on and have this huge arc," which didn't happen. But it hadn't aired yet, so for all they knew, I was going to be the the next breakout star of House of Cards. <laughs> I, I like that you thought of it that way. I immediately went to, they were like, oh, good, spoiler, we know he lives. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, interesting. We, uh, we got to get him around to hear what else is happening. <laughs> well, it was funny because Netflix did not want us talking about what my name was. Uh, we could use, I think, my my first name, but not my last name. Um but it was on IMDb. So there was a, there was a person from the a reporter from the, um, the style and entertainment section of the Washington post who thought it was interesting that, because I'm a former con I'm a former Congressman's son. And uh, they thought it was interesting that I was doing all these political shows, but never actually playing a Congressman. Um, so uh, I think I was the only non-politico ever to appear in house of cards, <laughs> my character, but uh in at, she, she, she was like, well, can't you tell me anything about the part and what it is? I was like, I'm not allowed to. I just can't. And she's like, she went and looked on IMDb and she said, it's right here. What is, <laughs> so it made it in the article. Uh, interesting. Is that the, it's funny. I read that article when it came out. Is that the article of like, there was a Washington Post article just about the, yeah. you're every, you're, you're, you were on everything at a certain point. Which was a misconception, but I was I was I I chose not to disabuse her of uh, of that idea. <laughs> it was very good of her to to create that perception for everyone. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I'm curious about that door opening because it opens door. You know, one of my questions is always like, oh, what helped you get to the next level of whatever you think that is for your career? But when you're on something like because I think it was interesting when you say, oh, I'm not in a place where I can curate or I can control. Because I think people would think like, oh, I'm, I played Pastor Tim and I've, I'm getting some notoriety. I have that. But the truth is it just makes access more possible, right? I, I definitely, yes. Uh, whenever you get a sort of breakthrough moment uh, and those, there are gradations of breakthroughs, obviously, but uh, certainly, um my first Broadway show uh, opened a ton of doors. And when I started doing uh, some really cool off-Broadway pieces right after that, that opened even more doors, even though it was, there were smaller shows, they, 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 certain, they packed a certain, they had a certain cachet or get a couple things that have some buzz and, and it helps. That helps more casting directors who also cast TV come see those shows. Uh, they started bringing me in more. And I do have, I have some truly wonderful champion casting directors who brought me in for years and years when I barely booked anything, but they believed in me and they all were independent casting offices and they all happened to be women too, which is fascinating. Julie Schubert and Alison Estrin and, um, uh, uh, Oh my God. Now I started, I shouldn't have started because now I'm, I'm, I'm doing that thing. You're, you're the other, the rest have fallen off the list now. They're all <laughs> <laughs> Rory Bergman, uh, uh, oh, geez. Oh, geez. Okay. And they, uh, many, just, many and they became, um, uh, we can, they, 
they became champions from seeing you in shows and from having you right. in their rooms, right? And then, right. And I would, uh, at least to their mind, and they, they had said to me over the years when I wasn't booking things, there's like, no, we're going to keep bringing you in because every time you come in, you are prepared, you nail it. You bring something interesting. You're not trying to do the quote unquote right thing. You're you're coming up with an interesting take, and the directors have always liked you. It just hasn't worked out yet. Hard to say why, but um, but you should know. And so, I had to change my mindset to that to where that felt like those were callbacks, uh, and which they sort of are uh, in a way because you're being brought back for something you did before. Anyway, eventually. Um, I booked a couple things and one, two of the biggest early ones were House of Cards and, and the Americans. And yeah, they did open doors. So it's not to say that I am, when I say that I'm not in a place to curate my career yet, yes, we all have the power to say no at any time. But what I mean is I, I don't, um, I'm not on the short list, most short lists for the next lead in the Spielberg film. <clears throat> Um, although I was finally in a Spielberg film, which was great, but it was, you know, it was just a handful of lines. Uh, but I don't mean that it's not, I'm not, there's no false modesty there. I'm not saying I'm not thrilled. I'm not saying that things haven't changed. They have, but it's, uh, it's just interesting. Uh, people sometimes think they don't understand why I'm not flying everywhere all the time and why I'm not, uh, what I mean when I say I'm still somewhat at the, I'm still at the mercy of people who, um, who have to think of, think of me or see me in the room and be one over. I still audition, um, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I still, it's hard to turn stuff down. Right. You know, it's still nice, nice. When the offer comes, you feel like I should take it because the work is work. Right. Um, no, I was really, I'm, I'm interested in the, the things that make the shifts for people because I think, I think it's important to know, like you said, going into all those rooms when you said, oh, it started to feel like a callback. It's for somebody to know, like not getting a job is not a rejection. It's like, right. it's it's sort of like you're building up currency with these. Not, I, I don't know if you're just building experience and getting better in the room, but that investment in those casting directors, because they see you do everything you said you do. And they're like, oh, I'm gonna right. keep bringing that person in eventually it's going to, somebody's going to say yes. Right. And it took a long time for me. It took a long time. And I'm really, really in a certain way, lucky that I don't have, I think there are two things. Number one, we found cheap rent when we first moved here with someone who didn't need the money per se, but just wanted the continuity and liked us. So that was like, she was almost like a patron of the arts in a way. She didn't give us money, but because she charged so little, um, we uh, didn't need a whole lot to cover our nut. And then the other thing, um, I, what was the other thing? I went on too far. I went too long on that. What was, so what was your question that you asked about? <laughs> I said yeah. about consistency of showing up in the room and casting director and eventually it'll pay off. And, uh, Oh, the other, th yeah. The other thing I would think I, uh, counterintuitively I was lucky about was that, uh, lucky with, uh, was that I really wasn't that good at anything else. So number one, that innate, that that circumstance with our landlord meant that I didn't have to have much of a, like a huge, all-encompassing survival job. And then also there really wasn't another career that I felt I could fall back on. So I didn't. <laughs> and I, I didn't want to be a star. I didn't care about being a star. 
um, I just wanted to make a living and, um, and have it be a decent living where we could travel a little bit and, um, have a two bedroom apartment maybe, um, and eat <laughs> periodically. Yeah. The dream, the dream is small. It makes it. It's yeah, incredible. because it was so, I mean, to me, being on stage, this is before TV even started to happen. Um, just being on stage was magic and it was the thing. It wasn't, I didn't look at it as a um, a means to a different end. It was the thing, the thing I always wanted, the place where I felt most alive. And so as long as I could keep doing that um, and as long as this rent held out, you know, <clears throat> with a couple of law and orders of laws and order uh, thrown in <laughs> periodically. Yeah, it's good that the law and order is like the national endowment for the arts in a way. You know? oh, it's so great. Yeah. Keeps coming back. Yeah. I, it's funny how I'm going to work backwards. I'll start with like, you know, what you're doing today. And then when you said, as long as I was working, what got you, I, did you go right to Oregon shakes from out of like undergrad or. No, I I was curious how that started. Yeah. After I graduated from Oberlin, I, um, I was home in DC with my parents for about half a year and then, or maybe not even that much actually that long actually, but then I, um, I worked. Oh yeah. It was a summer and I guess it was just basically a summer. Uh, I made money, worked in a video store, catered, you know, all kinds of stuff, but I had a Volkswagen bus at the time. So my plan was I was going to drive around the country stopping off at different uh, regional theaters and drop off my headshot and resume and maybe meet somebody and talk to people. And, and I did that to a certain extent, except I hadn't really calculated how expensive things were. And I ran out of money. Fortunately in Portland, Oregon, which is where my family's from. And they had a one bedroom apartment uh, when my dad was out there for work. And, um, and I was able to live there for a month I worked in a steel mill in the recycling end of this steel mill for a month, saw an audition notice, auditioned, got the part, uh, even though the woman took me aside and said, okay, I don't know you. You say you live in Washington, D.C., but you're here. This play starts rehearsals in two months. Are are you going to be here? And I was like, well, I'm going to D.C., and then I promise you I'll be there. And again, this is pre-internet, pre-Facebook, pre-cell phone, all that. And she told me, even I saw her again about five years ago, and she's like, you understand what a wild risk that was? <laughs> Who is this guy? This long-haired little <laughs> Get in his bus and drive yeah, across, across the country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I was sleeping. I mean, in Portland, I wasn't. But when I was driving, I was sleeping in the back of it. And I slept in the parking lots of some of the best hotels in this country. I'll, I'll have you know. <laughs> um, uh, and then I and then I went back to DC, made a little more money, and then came back again in winter and actually flipped the car um, on uh, hit some black ice in Idaho and went into a snowbank sideways and it didn't flip; it just laid down sideways. Um, but the snow was so thick that it actually didn't really damage the car. And some people pulled me back over and sent me on my way. And uh, so it was a it was a very it was a fraught journey towards my first professional acting gig, but. <laughs> Oh, and then opening night of my show is A Lie of the Mind by Sam Shepard, the storefront theater, the now defunct storefront theater in Portland. The, <laughs> the opening night, we started bombing Iraq in the in the first Gulf War. Um, so nobody came. <laughs> 
to a three-hour play yeah. with people screaming at each other the whole time. Yeah. I hope they came eventually because there was a short war. Well, I'll tell you, the funny thing is we 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 opened the night they started bombing and we closed about three days before the war ended. That's <laughs> so we were the war play. We were a war baby. Bringing lie of the mind, bringing comfort to the nation. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> uh, anyway, then. I got a second play right out after that, which was very successful. And um, I felt like I grew a lot as an artist, some wonderful, wonderful performers. Um, uh, I'm just going to name them, uh, even though I don't know if anyone will know them, but Ted Roysom, who's one of the greatest actors I've ever seen, who died about eight years ago. Just a brilliant guy who never left Portland. Um, and Vanna O'Brien, also brilliant. And uh, Alan Noss, the director. And it changed my I think it changed the course of my career because it really felt like a little mini grad school working with those three. Um, and from that, uh, Alan, who had been at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, said, you should go down there and audition uh, for the generals. And I did. And, um, and I got in. And again, I had gone to California and Los Angeles to finally be with my girlfriend from Oberlin, who was now graduated and in, uh, living in, Ca in Los Angeles. Um, and a month after I got there, I got the call to um, to come back and be in the, my first season at uh, OSF. So it, I guess the story is I should always audition and then we'll skip town and I'll get the gig. <laughs> That's right. They'll call you back as long as it's right. <laughs> You'll always get a job when it's least convenient. That's how it works. That's it's actually funny. I was uh, our very first interview for the pod was Aaron Weiner, and one of the things he said is always. Yeah, always travel. He said because if yeah. you, you know, don't if you don't go on a trip for the because you think you're going to get a job, that's not going to happen. But if you go on the job on the trip, then the you're going to get the gig. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh sure. I mean it's 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 almost like clockwork. Oh, by the way, I love Aaron. Aaron is a fantastic actor and human, uh, and uh, and uh, artistic director. So he's great, great guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, one of my one of my best friends. I agree. And uh, actually, it was funny. I think he was one of the people who said you should talk to Kelly. And then I oh cool filed that away until <laughs> until today. Um, which is well, I'm glad you did. That's me awesome. Too. I'm really glad. And I was when you, because I you know when you said oh I started in Oregon. That's such an amazing. Did you realize that it's an amazing theater company? I know you grew up there, so you must have had an awareness, but but very few places hire you for two years. I was hired, they hired me uh, seasonal. They hire you seasonally, or at right. least I don't know what it's like now. I, I assume it's the same. You sign on for a season. <clears throat> my first season was actually, let's see, was it, is this true? No, my second season was actually a shorter one. My first season was eight months. Um, and then I tacked on a school tour, um, where two actors go around to different schools and, and do workshops and talk to actors and stuff. And that's two months long. Uh, so that's, but that's great. Cause it's an extension of your contract. It's extra money. I was non-equity at the time and they had, they had a special agreement with equity where actually, I think it was maybe 15% of the cast could be non-equity. Uh, and I got to play whatever role they would hire me for. And I, didn't do much the first season, but I understudied, I think I understudied nine roles, including both brothers, uh, Captains Dumaine and um, All's Well That Ends Well. 
So there's a campfire scene where it's, you know, uh, the, the web of life is a mingled yarn, good and ill together. And I would do that. And then I popped over the other side of the fake campfire and say the other line. And um, I memorized the whole fucking thing. <laughs> but um, in the next season, I got to play Lysander and a couple other interesting roles. But anyway, uh, I did know it was a great theater company. My first legit live theater professional, but legit live theater was... Um, as you like it back in the early seventies or mid to late, maybe seven, whatever it was. Um, and my parents had been taken to the festival. We lived in Oregon at the time and they said, we have to go back. It's magical. Um, and I was just like, I don't know anything about Shakespeare. And he's like, no, neither do we, but it is magical. And you'll be surprised how much you understand. Just, re- re- just surrender to the energy of it and, um, and the magic and you'll love it. And I did. And we had decent seats and I fell in love with the woman who played Rosalind, which I told the people uh, who were at, uh, the, the guy who was auditioning me when I auditioned in person. I was like, uh, Maureen Kilmurray, where is she? I need to talk to Maureen Kilmurray. <laughs> Part of it was the magic of the place. And my dad claims that I said I would do anything. I'd love to even carry a spear like that guy on stage when I was a little boy. Um, within that this is a lesson to us all be careful what you wish for. Cause the first thing I did was literally carry a spear and stand for a, the longest scene in all of Othello uh, right there <laughs> in the pouring rain at times. And, you know, and, you know uh, and look how quick it was to achieve your dream. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it, they had just won the Tony a few years previous um, for outstanding regional theater. So that was, that was kind of cool. I I have usually suffered from fear of of appearing presumptuous even to myself. So it was a lot, and I do think that at times that is that that might explain why at times things progressed slowly for me because you have to be audacious, and if you can't picture the thing, you can't. You know, I was talking to actually the the Dwayne Wade interview that you saw. I was talking to him about that, but. For some reason, there was a period of time right at the at the end of school and the first couple of years after school where I just felt sort of free and easy. I didn't, I would love to do this, but it wasn't the be all end all. I was also like, I could stay in Portland and do theater or I could go back to DC. There's great theater there. This would be magical. But I, I sort of went to audition because this guy, Alan Noss, the director, who was sort of a brief mentor in a way, um, told me to, told me I should. And I loved the idea because I love the place, but it wasn't, I wasn't desperate for it. And, uh, and so I didn't have pressure. I didn't feel pressure. It felt fun. And then it took a long time for that feeling to come back. I went to LA right after uh, Ashland. And I remember being shocked at how different my feeling was going into any audition or meeting room. It was such a different feeling because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. What do they want me to be? How should I act? How, how, how am I supposed to? They're like, be yourself. Well, how do I be myself? Let me see. Let me break that down. Whereas before I just was like, hi, by the way, I'm in love with somebody who I saw here on stage 15 years ago. Um, but anyway, here's my piece. Uh, you know, whatever. It, 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 apparently it wasn't too creepy that I said that, but uh I don't know. I don't know. I'm, now I'm sort of going off on a tangent, but it is interesting that that was a period of time when I did know how great that place was, but it didn't intimidate me for whatever reason. Uh, and that is not to say that I am 
not easily intimidated. Uh, I, I was for a chunk. I think I'm kind of over it now, but still fight it sometimes. But uh, well, actually, I got lucky. That was a lucky break. Yeah. And, and also that idea that of not, I don't want to say it incorrectly, but not caring is really important because you can go into the room and be comfortable and be yourself. And, uh, yeah. and you know, you can't teach personality you know, yeah. but you want to create an opportunity for that to show. And I think when you go into the LA rooms and you talk about the idea of like, what do they want? You know, the second, yeah. I said that earlier of like, I auditioned doing, you know, not what they want, but being creative and bringing something to it. And I think once you go into the room trying to please somebody, you can, right. I think the other people in the room can feel that. Yeah. there, And it's, it's sometimes, it, I think, it did to me, and I think for a lot of people, it's, it feels counterintuitive or it sounds counterintuitive because, yes, you care. Um, you care enough to put in work to create something. I'm, I'm going to show you a gift. I did some work on this, and this is a cool thing I'm about to show you in, my, in your audition. But you don't need it. Right. Um, you don't at, at a certain point, you don't care, I guess. I think need is a better word, but you don't care if you get rejected. It's not going to hurt you if you're rejected. You care because you put work in. But, um, and then, yeah, just, you want, yeah, you, it, you're right. It's not pleasing. You don't want to please someone. It, and it's not exactly, though, that you don't want to give them what they're looking for or what they want. You do make an educated guess. You look at the material. If, uh, if it's a TV show that's long running, you look at the style. Um, if you can know anything about the director, that's a good idea. Uh, and obviously knowing about the writer and knowing the whole play and, and all that. But ultimately the best way to get a job is to just say, well, this is how I would do it. Um, I'm not going to go all half baked. You know, I'm not going to go into a, an in-treatment audition and, um, treat it like Seinfeld. Um, so, you know, the style, uh, but you have to you have to bring your own take on it, and that doesn't mean pushing anything. Your own take could be something very simple, but it has to feel right and and make it, it inspire you. Um, and that's the only way you're going to really inspire someone else. And and did that when you talked about going to LA and do it and having that feeling of <laughs> tightness, it felt like yeah, uh, I won't have to regroup the whole thing. But it uh, did that shift there or you came to New York eventually. What brought you coming here? I had one fantastic audition uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, so I, I did a play. I did uh, The Destiny of Me by Larry Kramer down in um, uh, Long Beach. I don't know, know if it's still there, but it was a very good little theater um, down in Long Beach run by Shashin Desai. Um, and one of the cast members' wives was a uh, was a big uh, manager in Los Angeles, and I was proud of the show. Um, and I it was in my comfort zone. I was doing theater. Um, it was a great role, and so she brought me in. Uh, she's like, I, "I'm going to freelance with you," um, and specifically because uh, there's there's this audition. Uh, it's a New York uh, soap opera. There's an audition for this great role. You might be a little too old for it, but um, I want to I want to submit you for it. Uh, and I was like, great. And it was long, great scene, uh, you know, a little melodramatic as soaps are sometimes. But uh, 
but it was a surprisingly good grounded scene with a lot of range and a lot of different things, little peaks to hit. Um, and it went great. It went great. But the casting person said, yeah, you're like, you're like five to seven years old, too old. But uh, if you're in New York, look me up. And so we were already sort of planning on leaving because my wife is a dancer and she's like, I want to, I don't want to be in a David Lee Roth video. I, I want to, she'd worked with all the, 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 the contemporary uh, dance people who were there. And she's like, I'm gonna try myself in New York. So I followed and called her and um, she, we went in and talked and she just gave me a part. It was one scene, but it was, a, it wasn't long, but it was fun. It was kind of, kind of hip, kind of sexy. Uh, initially it was, probably going to come back but uh it didn't but still it was um it it was a it was a little moment that made me feel comfortable and i had just started freelancing with a, a manager here because i was no longer with that other person and i had i think because of that gig a month after i arrived going so well even though it was it, again it didn't lead to anything but it, it just went well it was uh, and i had not been on a tv set before so that was a confidence boost. And for the first three months I was freelancing with this new manager, I had the highest ratio of auditions to callbacks that I've ever had before or since. And they signed me after the three months. I didn't book a damn thing, but um, by the end of that year, um, I, I had started booking a little bit, uh, but not, not a ton. It was a long slog for me. But I had, so I think, I guess... I guess what happened with me was that I had moments that turned out to be pretty key moments where I did have that feeling of confidence early on. And then I would sometimes slip into trying to please. Um, but the one, the one in LA that, that was turned out to be fortunate was uh, fortuitous was the one that uh, actually led to the gig back here. Yeah. Yeah. And that feeling it's great to know that it's internal, right? Cause it, yeah. One thing, if you said, oh, it went great, and then I, you know, it, it led to this job and this job and this job. It's like, no, it led to the feeling yeah. that I could present myself in a confident way. Yeah, and um, and thank God I didn't, I don't know what it was. I, I don't know why I didn't get, um, I would get a little depressed every once in a while, but it never really, it never killed me that I wasn't booking yeah, I, I mean, again, I had my moments, but um, I, I don't know why that was. I think I've said this to other people too, but I think that all along the way, there was always something, some buoying voice or event, whether it was doing that soap right after getting here or um, that first summer where that was really uh, after being here for a year and it being really hard, going to the Texas Shakespeare Festival, uh, playing Romeo and uh, bunch of great roles and having a fantastic time and that happened um different casting directors um you know stephanie clapper was one of the early ones who took me aside and just was like you're good you're good hang in there um and then later people like rory or or julie schubert the just every every moment at, at any moment that could have really spell uh, spelled uh, doom for me which would have had to be really bad because as I mentioned before, there was nothing else I could do. Uh, there, there was some voice of hang in there kid. Yeah. Stephanie, also a friend that hang in there is good, right? Just people recognizing. And plus when you say no other, I feel like I read the, your website. So the idea of no, no B plan, no plan B. 
no no ability for it is different but uh but that's the desire in creating a life that allows you to keep pursuing it you know because because yeah. i i was thinking about it today thinking about it because i was thinking about the politics of the covid bill and everything and i thought oh i'm so so lucky that i don't have crushing debt that yeah. a lot of 30 year olds have just from college right now you know and because if i had that starting out i would not have been able to keep pursuing it you know? yeah and i mean as hard as it was moving and as expensive i don't so i moved here in 93 when did you move here 92 92 yeah as hard as it was and as expensive as it was here then it's exponentially worse now and so i can't imagine I really, I truly wonder if I would have been able to pursue the same route. I would have had to figure something else out. I mean, finding this unicorn of a, a of a housing situation, um, I guess it can still happen. But that was deeply lucky. Even at the time, I wouldn't have been able to survive without without that um, largesse. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard. Yeah, because uh, and that's where the the encouragement is always important to keep going. And you talked about a man, the manager. I love the stories because I always think there's this, um, I always like hearing like, oh, I got a manager because this person was married to somebody in a cast. Because I think when you don't have an agent or a manager, it is a mystery as to how that comes about. And then when it happens, it seems almost luck in a way that you couldn't control that, you know? Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, definitely there are, I didn't go to a fancy grad program, so I didn't have the, um, the showcase, uh, where a lot of people do get their agents or, um, or even sometimes gigs. Um, so it did feel like a mystery to me. Um, I did get lucky having this woman, um, in Los Angeles, uh, find me interesting. Um, I want to reiterate that nothing happened there. Nothing to the extent that, um, I remember one time calling in because I hadn't heard from her for a long time. <laughs> she did. This, this sounds harsh, but she did a, it was a very good thing. She taught me. I called and I, and I said, I was, would love to have a sit down, have a meeting with you. And she's like, uh, okay, I'm very busy though. What's the, what's the agenda? Very busy though. What, what, what's it about? What's it about? And I was like, well, you know, stuff in general. And she's like, cut me off and said, no, no, I'm very busy. I don't talk about stuff in general. What's the agenda? And I was shocked and my face got flushed and I was on the phone with her, obviously. But I just was like, oh, I, said, I just want to I just want to talk about what's going on. And um, and the fact that, that nothing's happening. And so I showed up and we uh, I, I knew it wasn't great when she said, let's go for a walk. <laughs> it's never great. But it was Santa Monica, so it was pretty. So I was like, okay, no, she just wants to see so I get some fresh air. Um, but she was very nice. She was just like, look, I, I have a lot of people who are really taking off right now. Um, I thought maybe we'd catch lightning in a bottle with you, and it didn't happen. I think you're great. Um, I had mentioned going to Texas. She was like, I think you should. I think you should go to Texas. Um, come back, and, uh, you know, we'll talk again then. But um, – yeah, it's just, it's not, I, 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 I don't know what to do with 
but uh, say, you know, I'll help make sure you can make contact with that casting director back in New York if you go, because I talked about that too. So um, it was tough love, but it was a great lesson. Um, no, people are busy. They don't want to hear, Hey, what can you do for me? Well, what do you mean? Like, I don't know, whatever. You got any thoughts? <laughs> a job? Yeah. Anything? I don't know. Do you have, do you have thoughts about what I should do for my career? <laughs> like, no. Um, ask why am I not getting auditions? What am I, what do I need? What do I need to do? Um, to, um, uh, yeah, something specific. Ask a specific question that they can use because don't make them brainstorm for you, um, right. especially early on. Yeah, because they they took a chance on just forming the relationship. So, right. I mean, if yeah, if you've been with them for if you've signed on and and um, you know they've given a full court press and and they're bringing you in too because they're they're fighting for you, then then you know you're in a position where you hope that they're brainstorming about the types of things that could extend your career. But in this case, she basically started to freelance with me because of this one show that she thought I was right for. Uh, and then, um, and then from there, just, you know, a, a couple other things and nothing happened. So it was up to me to push. So she did say, I was really glad you called ultimately when you spit out what you wanted, because if you hadn't, I would have wondered if you were just somebody who didn't really care. That's good. Yeah. Showed, yeah. Showed the initiative, if not specific. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Because <laughs> I think that's the hardest thing is to realize. I think it's a hard thing, not the hardest, but a hard thing to realize that you have a voice in your journey and your desire. And though you get an agent or a manager or somebody, it's actually you who's working on your career and yeah. goals. And yeah. so you have to almost you have to help set the agenda. Yeah. And there are people who fight that. Um, and there are people, uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's hard because that you do form and ideally you form friendships with these people. I mean, to me, ideally other people might have a different take on it. Um, but um, so it, it's, it's hard. And I would imagine it's hard for them if they decide they have to drop you. Um, if you decide you want to move on to a different person, like those are hard things for me anyway, um, to handle. I haven't done it all that much. Um, so I'm, I'm probably still bad at it, but, uh, um, it, it, but it's, but it, you do need to, you're absolutely right. You need to take ownership, um, of your career and if something's not working, um, or if you have bigger, you, if don't be shy about your goals and your dreams. Like, don't be like me all the way through my thirties, being afraid of being seen as presumptuous. Uh, be presumptuous. What is presumptuous? Uh, you said that twice. What does that mean to you? I don't know. Uh, there was something. Um, I had a hard time even telling people until late in high school that I wanted to be an actor because it, there weren't a lot of non-actors. Uh, there weren't. I, I had no actors in my family. There weren't. A, I didn't know a lot of uh, any professional actors. A couple of my teachers did have relationships with New York actors, and so. And but I didn't know that really. So even just saying it felt stupid. Felt like, oh, Kelly, <laughs> you know. Uh, I didn't know what it meant exactly. It was probably part of it as well. I didn't know what it looked like. Um, so I didn't tell anybody. I finally told my botany teacher in high school who uh, had been an actor in his life and had tons of actor friends up here. And, and it felt like I was terrified 
to tell him, but he said his reaction was, oh yeah, I think you should try. And I was like, wait, what? Oh, but I'm glad I tried it out of him because that was one of those bullying voices at a certain point when um, that, that helped me think, have the audacity to, to think that I could make it. Uh, or uh, do I, I don't even know what I didn't even know what make it I still don't know what make it means um, it depends on situations and then though uh, I, I was like well I, I, I don't know how I wanted to be on TV I wanted to be a series regular on a TV show uh, I wanted to be in movies but I didn't really talk about it I didn't really say it because again it felt presumptuous and I don't know what it is so I don't know somewhere along the line I picked up this thing about I picked up this thing where I was modest to a fault. I, I, modesty is a wonderful uh, trait um, and I admire it in people and I admire it in some of the most successful people I know. But when you're modest to a, to a point where you can't even say what you want to do, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in its way. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in that not yeah. ever saying it, it'll never happen. Um, well, Think so that, I, I, I think I've got past it a bit, though, fortunately. Yeah, because uh, I think about that. I think it's funny you say that in your 30s. I think it was in my 30s where I was, yeah, I started thinking like, and I would lie to myself. I would say it's too personal for me to talk about. You know, my art's too personal, as opposed to it's mm. too scary to say, you know, I want to direct at that theater. And I want to. Yeah. Because what if what if people say silence or they say or they laugh? Yeah, you know, just terrible. I actually, I can edit myself out. I was I remember a teacher of mine ten years after I graduated. I I asked her what she knew about a theater in Chicago, and she's like, "Oh, you're not going to work there." Oh, and, I, and I went and I said, "I I, I have an interview next week." <laughs> <laughs> and I thought and her reason was actually why I I mean I didn't get the job but it was uh, for her her reason for saying it was not incorrect of what that theater was looking for but to hear that response I thought yeah oh I'm never going to say anything again <laughs> yeah people sometimes don't understand even if what they're saying is correct they don't they don't understand how that the, the, the way you, they say it is going to land in a certain way. It's like, I just told you the truth. Yeah. But, but it was the, give the context and don't say it that way. Don't be so dismissive. My dad remembers. Um, I think he's told this. I think I can share this story because I believe he told it in his memoir, but he, after he graduated from high school, he, you know, he single mom, waitress salary two two boys. Um, they didn't, they, they were not, they didn't come from a lot. But uh, he had to go back into school and pick something up and he came into the office and there's some teachers and maybe the principal and got the thing he needed and then he left and he overheard them say that kid's not going anywhere. And it's one of the things that I heard that story early on. uh, Never. I always thought, oh, it's horrible, but it never fully dawned on me until I got older how that could break you. Yeah. Um, and then he became a United States congressman. And to me, it was like, he became a fuck you. I'm a United States congressman is what he became. That was his full title. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it's, it, and I, I can't speak to, 
how long that journey was or anything like that, but it is, we have to figure out ways. And it's, I love hearing that you not love, I'm sorry. I, I, I find it fascinating. And I, and I relate that you also felt some of this stuff in your thirties. It's an interesting time. Um, but finding a way to take that. And I always envied people who could do this, who were faced with, no, you can't do that. You're not going anywhere faced with that. They'd be like, (laughs) what do you know? And where I would be like, Oh, flush face. Uh, Oh God, maybe he's right. What am I? And thank God, again, there was always somebody booing saying, you're really good. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, But, But that's hard. It is hard. And I did feel it. It's funny. It took a lot of, to, just to hear it, hear you talk about the not be, to be presumptuous. And it's not presumptuous. It's to be able to say what you want, because it took yeah. me a long time to understand that, like, right, it's just ownership of what you want. And it's confidence and other people do it. And, yeah. no, and also, yes. how are you going to get the job you want? People can't read your mind. <laughs> You know, so you tell them and then they think of you that way. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't. Yeah. Them, yeah. I, I remember. Yeah. It's interesting. I um, I had worked. So there was a there's a director who I'd always liked her work and I auditioned and it was a cool show on Broadway. Um, but it was. Uh, it, it was for, it, and it was the lead role, but it was to understudy the lead role. And I really wasn't understudying. I didn't, I had sort of said, no, I'm not doing that as, as a, uh, and this, this is no aspersions on, on, on understudying. I just think like you sometimes have to focus. Like I stopped going to regional theater for a while because I was like, I know I might not work for a while, but if I keep leaving town, I'm not going to get seen by these people. So it wasn't saying that work isn't good. It was just, but this is what my focus is. Same thing with with uh, audition, with uh, understudying. It was like, no, I don't want to be tied up. To, I want, I'm, I'm willing to not work. Anyway, but so this call comes in and because I wanted to work with this director and I thought the play was really good, I was like, okay, I'll come in. And maybe because I didn't need it, I gave one of the best auditions I've ever given in my life. And uh, very different than what the uh, the person who played the role, who's a fantastic actor, um, and I know him now actually, but uh, very different from that performance. So it, I found it interesting that they cast me like before, and I thought, okay, I'm going to go in, I'm going to have this thing. There'll be a callback, so I can always say no, I'm not coming in for the callback. And but I literally an hour later got the offer, and I was like, oh fuck. And we had to turn it down. Uh, and uh, and my wife had said, you should write to her. Just write to her and say, I really enjoyed meeting you. I just, I'm, I, I'm just deciding I can't, I can't do that. I, I want to keep myself open for being on stage, you know, whatever, something. Right. Uh, and I didn't. And <laughs> until like three months later, two months later, oh, I guess when the play opened. I said, I saw, uh, heard great things. Um, congratulations on your opening because it was her first Broadway show. And uh, uh, just wanted to say, I'm sorry it didn't work out. I was sort of going through trying to figure that out. Um, I, I, I'm sure I didn't leave you hanging or anything like that, but thank you for thinking I could play this role and whatever. Uh, but I know it's going to be. I got a response. I hadn't heard anything from her, um, but I got a response within 
half a day that said, oh, well, do you want some comps to the show? And by the way, I'm about to do this workshop, a week-long workshop. Uh, would you want to do it? Uh, you you want to be play this role? And I was like, yes. And I don't think my first thought was that it was like she was sitting there waiting. I'm going to wait till he calls, which it wasn't. All because, And that left my brain immediately. All it was was um, reaching out and reminding someone of your existence and reminding someone that they liked you um, and making it clear that you want to work with them and you liked being in the room with them. And she was like, oh, well, I this solves a problem. I have this workshop. He just, great, let's do Kelly. Um, you know, it, that's it's sort of a roundabout way of answering. Uh, no, it's great because actually, and it's funny what you said. That reminding of like casting is solving a problem. Yeah. People, you know, people co- tell, talk about that a lot. And also the idea of reminding somebody that you want to work with. Nobody doesn't want to hear, hey, I like you. Yeah. 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 You have this thing on your website that makes me go that we, you and I have a bond about the fact that you have Mike Lupica saying nice things about you. Where <laughs> when I first moved to the city, I read him every day and became oh, a yeah. fan. And I thought, yeah, if Lupica would ever comment on my directing, I would hold that higher than the times. Like just so I That's awesome. That. I love the fact that it's on your website because I thought and I listened and I went, this is this pertains to nothing but sports yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. And he had Brian Koppelman on and yeah. he was saying that they were talking about a couple of the characters. How do you come up with that? And then he said, somebody sent me this clip and I was just blown over because this was bowled over. It was after the first season where I'd only started to do some meteor stuff by the second half, the last part of the season. Um, he said, you know, there's another character in that voice of his. There's another character that I that I really this is so not a spot on Mike Lupica, but um that people just can't, I love people just can't get enough of them. And that's that dollar bill. And I just fell on the floor. I was like, oh, oh, and he's saying it to the showrunner and the creator of the show. I was like, oh, oh. And I, I was like, okay, Brian, don't say, uh, don't say um really you like him <laughs> which he didn't he was like yeah yeah it's fun it's good um so i have a i have a sports journalist story that uh, if i come a columnist story uh so i grew up in dc in high school and my sports my sports fandom was you know high school it's it's big time for sports fandom um and uh tony kornheiser was a was a um a dc washington post columnist um and he and Michael Wilbon too. And now they do, pardon the interruption. Uh, but so I grew up reading those guys before they had a TV show. And Tony Kornheiser, um, apparently from the get-go was a huge, huge fan of the Americans. So much so that in the first season, he wrote about it enough and talked about it on the show enough that they wrote him and it took place in DC in the 80s, which is when I grew up there, which is, I was the age of Paige, Holly Taylor, when reading when I was reading those uh, columns, but they put him in a scene in a bar. I mean, he just said one line. It, it wasn't a big deal, but so that's how big a fan he was. But once my character was introduced late season two, he's a great guy, but he's a thorn in the side of the murderous um, Soviet spy uh, protagonists. Yeah. And so people perversely hated me and loved them, even though they were, they were the killers trying to bring down our country. <laughs> uh, but that's how brilliant the show was. Um, and so Kornheiser 
started this campaign where he would just be like, he would do a recap of the American. He's like, and then, ah, oh, fuck. He didn't, he didn't swear on the show, but he's like, and that pastor Tim was back and ah, oh, pastor Tim has to die. He yeah. must die. Somebody kill pastor Tim. And, um, so finally, I told the producers of the Americans this, and I had tweeted at Kornheiser a number of times and they never got a response. But at one of the final, I think season, maybe season five, whatever it was, um, uh, rap parties, Kornheiser was there. And one of the producers came to find me and dragged me over and to meet Kornheiser. And he, he looked at me blankly because if, if you haven't seen the Americans, right. <laughs> I have this ridiculous wig on and I'm unrecognizable. But then after a moment, he did. He was like, oh, oh, my God. And I was like, why do you want to kill me? <laughs> why do you want me to die? He's like, wait, what? Oh, well, I mean, you know, and I was like, no, oh, look. I, and, I, and I laughed. But I said, I just need you to know that the fact that you even mentioned me was awesome because and that I elicited I, I, like I elicited some passion from you is that made my day it doesn't have to be love. It can be anything, but it was passionate. You felt it. And I grew up reading your columns uh, when I was a kid. And um, then on his next show, he talked about going to the um, to the premiere and how great it was. And that right before they signed off, he said, oh, I forgot the best part. So I met the guy, you know, who, who do I hate more on the show than anybody else? And they're like, Pastor Tim. He's like, ah, Pastor Tim. I met him. He comes up to me and he's like, why do you want me to die? And I was like, I don't want you to die. Like in that, cor that Kornheiser voice. Um, and he recounts that. And I just was I. I was so over the moon, like you with Lupica, yeah. right? It's just that kind of, that wonderful sort of thing with these, it's a different part of your life and they somehow recognize this part of your life too. It's great. No, it's so great. Um, yeah. As I am being respectful and we've killed it with a great conversation in case, because I asked and you talked about presumptuous and naming it and sure. in a moment, but if you had any advice that you thought about, just because I want to make sure in case people think about it. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's funny. I, it's hard for me to give practical advice because just because the landscape is, it's, it's completely different than when I arrived, but I will say, um, don't be afraid to be presumptuous. Um, I think, and I might go back on this, but I, I do think that if you're going to air one, it's, it's not a science, it's an art to find the balance between a, a, a healthy humility and a healthy um, uh, confidence. I, I think now, because I did the opposite, that if you're going to err, shoot for the line, um, aim for the line. But if you're going to err, aim towards more confidence and aim towards unreasonable confidence. Don't be afraid of people laughing at your, your dream. Um, because I was for too long and I know uh, things are fine right now, now, but I do think that maybe I could have taken 10 years off by my slog if I had not been afraid to say what I, what I want, um, to fully embrace what I want. Um, and I also would say be ambitious without being competitive to the best of your ability. Um, and that's hard and you have to sort of meditate on that. And by meditate, I mean, you have to keep practicing it and you have to keep figuring it out and you're gonna, you're not going to be, a, you're not going to be a saint, but if you can take pleasure and joy in people in your 
hopefully wide circle and diverse circle of friends. If you can take pleasure and joy and even hope in anything that, ri- that, that, that makes them rise, then I swear to you, it's going to only help your rise. It really does. And I can't explain it except that it works. Um, and sometimes it's as simple as you create a great network and you work and you create things with people and they rise and they, and they are in a position now to sort of fill out some flesh out some parts, or maybe they're making an indie movie and they, they bring you along because they love you and you're easy to work with and, and you're great. And then that, that's a gig for you. Or maybe it's just, you know, advice. And maybe it's just, uh, I, I had a couple people in my life that, that got to a certain level and it just made me realize, Oh, that's possible for me too. You know, anything. I just, it's, Plus, you're just going to be happier. Um, so, well, that, those are my biggest pieces of advice. That's great advice. That lack of that ambition with lack of competitiveness, because you know, we're not. You can't predict what somebody else gets. Doesn't yeah. mean it was meant for you. Yeah, <laughs> I can't. I, some of my favorite New York moments, my favorite memories are, and this didn't happen right away. Um, because I, I shrank or I felt competitive. And, but when I sort of was able to get past that a little bit, some of my favorite New York moments are when I'm in a waiting room in an audition for an audition. I know I'm prepared because um, it sucks to be unprepared. I know I'm prepared. And I, there are a couple other people I know, either good friends or just people I, that I know and I'm friendly with who are probably going in for the same role, but we have a great fucking time out in just catching up and talking and laughing uh, out in the um, in the uh, the rehearsal room, and I think the people I'm closest with or friendliest with, even if I'm not close with them, are the ones who where we can all spot the person who's trying too hard or trying to psych you out, because uh, that happens less in New York. I found than in L.A. And again, this this is I haven't been in L.A. for LA for quite a while, but um, I don't know. Just I I and that speaks to people who can really be like, Oh, I want this job. If I'm not going to get it, I hope you get it, but I, I, I want it. I'm not going to, you know, we'll go out for a beer afterwards, but so it's, it's ambitious, but it's not, you don't measure your um, success by how many people you've stomped on the head of to get where you are. Hopefully. <laughs> Such a great conversation. I yeah, I love talking to Kelly, and I loved uh, I loved his thing with Kornheiser and the fact that he has Lupica on his website. It was just funny when I saw that. I went right. That's why we bond. We're both not only theater junkies, but we're sports junkies as well. And it was really good. And I loved his advice about you know be presumptuous. I don't think and when he explained it, you know, it's not about being presumptuous. It's about being comfortable with being able to say what you want. And that is the way for people, the quickest way for people to know is you tell them, hey, I'd love to be in that show. I'd love to be, I want to act in a movie. I want to be on at a major, you know, at this particular theater. And it's it's not, you know, it feel might feel some people are comfortable with it, but others might feel presumptuous. It's not presumptuous. You know, it's just being confident enough to say what you want. And like he said, I think there's a, you know, I think I love this thing about like risk it, go to the side of presumptuous because 
we, we both, I think, have a little humility problem, especially we talked about that in our 30s. And that's that idea of, you know, why not? Go for it. You know, I, I like what I really wanted to say is what I like about that idea of, yes, I want this. And if I don't get it, I hope you get it. You know, not to be competitive or a jerk, but also don't be afraid to say what you want. It's the only way it's going to happen. And so I'm, you know, and I'm hoping that we've taken this time. I'm, I'm feeling like a lot of people I've talked with lately are ready to do what's next. And I think, as I said, I feel like on the last episode, you know, I hope we've taken this time to say what that thing is that's next for you and that you can start to aim for it and tell people and talk about it and share it with us. Share it with me, Patrick at the Farm Theater. Let me know anything you're doing. I would love to plug it. I'd love to see it. And I'll let the community know. And I'm grateful you're doing stuff. I'm always happy to hear about it. That said, glad you're listening. I'm glad we're able to have these conversations during the pandemic. And uh, thank you for sharing it with other people and recommending it and reviewing it. The five-star review on Apple Podcasts always helps. And I find that it helps a lot to get the audience there. And just keep uh, doing everything you can so that we can get back together. Get your vaccine. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Wear a mask. And um, with that, we're out.